You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about vitamin D. Joining me is the clinical director of endocrinology, also at CHOP, Dr. Andrew Calabria. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. We're going to get right into where we get vitamin D from our diet, since that's where I I think many people are getting their vitamin D or hopefully trying to get their vitamin D. So where can we find vitamin D? So historically, most of our vitamin D actually comes from the sun, um, and we get it through the ultraviolet B rays. Um, But um, vitamin D is actually found naturally only in a few foods. Um, Main sources include fattier fishes, things like wild salmon, um, which aren't typically staples of the American diet. So more commonly, you get vitamin D from fortified foods such as milk, orange juice, yogurt, and certain breakfast cereals. Great. And as you mentioned, not only is it not a staple of the American diet, but not my, not many kids are eating fatty fishes. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Most of my patients do not right. eat a lot of fish. Right. So what are the targets for vitamin D intake for infants and children? So the, the standard that was set in 2008 from the AAP suggests that we should get at least 400 units a day in um, our infants, the 0 to 12 range. Um, and then for kids over one year of age, um, the Institute of Medicine suggested 600 units of vitamin D or even more for um, those older kids. Mm -hmm. The Institute of Medicine and the Endocrine Society also sort of suggested some upper limits, but anywhere from 600 to 1,000 international units per day is likely a very safe dose for most kids for maintenance amounts of vitamin D. Okay, great. So for when we're talking about the diet, that's roughly kids having like three cups of milk a day or maybe like two, a yogurt, cheese, and milk, or something like three servings a day of dairy? Probably would get you to, you know, in that range. You know, a reasonable range for vitamin D. With some sunlight, hopefully. Hopefully with some sunlight. Right. So some providers start all newborns on vitamin D supplementation, while I've seen others who only supplement breastfed newborns. So which of these newborn neonates need vitamin D supplementation and for how long? That's a very good question. So, I mean, I think all newborns, really should be supplemented. And I don't think regardless of whether formula fed or breastfed, um, certainly the exclusively breastfed infants, you know, this should be continued longer. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it depends on when, you know, breastfeeding stops being the major form of, you know, the made the majority of their intake. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would continue the vitamin D until other foods really kind of make up the majority of their dietary intake. For formula-fed infants, um, you know, most do not get enough vitamin T until they reach about 32 ounces of formula. So I think those kids, especially the younger infants, they're the ones that still need vitamin D. Typically around six months of age is when they reach that and then when they can stop it. Um, But still the greatest risk, the highest risk group for rickets is really in that exclusively breastfed group, especially if 
the mother is also deficient in vitamin D.、Mm -hmm. Right. So as you mentioned, it could take a few months, even in the formula-fed baby, until they're getting enough volume of formula to get that 400、um, IU's of vitamin D, and then maybe even longer in the breastfed child, depending on their diet. Right. So. You mentioned if the mom is vitamin D deficient, that that could be a problem for the baby. So, similarly, could a breastfeeding mom supplement herself without supplementing the baby? Right. There are some strategies for doing this. Some parents prefer to take vitamin D themselves.、Um, there are studies that suggest about four thousand to six thousand units per day of vitamin D taken by the mother will be enough to replete vitamin D stores for the child. So that's a strategy, maybe for babies who are having difficulty taking the supplement, or the mom prefers not to give the baby a supplement. Exactly. And for those who don't like dairy or choose not to eat it, such as those with a vegan diet, should they be on a maintenance vitamin D supplement? This is a good question because we certainly see more children and families sort of following non-traditional diets,、um, as in those who follow a vegan diet. There is an increased risk for vitamin D deficiency. Um, vitamin D can be obtained from regular exposure to sunlight,、mm -hmm. as well as certain fortified foods. This may include mushrooms, soy or almond milk, or、um, orange juice, or certain cereals. So, give us a refresher, because I certainly forget this all the time. So, tell me about vitamin D metabolism and specifically how that leads to bone mineralization. Right. So, vitamin D certainly comes in different forms. It's very easy to confuse the different formulations or, or、um, metabolites of vitamin D.、Um, so, if we're considering that most of your vitamin D is going to come from sunlight,、mm -hmm. where you have cholesterol、um, precursors that get converted from the skin to vitamin D three. Okay.、Um, vitamin D can also be in the diet or through supplements in the form of vitamin D three or vitamin D two. Vitamin D gets is bound to a specific vitamin D binding protein. It gets transported to the liver, and then it gets hydroxylated by an enzyme to the twenty five hydroxy vitamin D, which is the one that we measure in the lab. This is the storage form of vitamin D and the most important one for clinical testing. Great. And then it gets converted through an enzyme, the one hydroxylase enzyme. In the kidney to the active form of vitamin D, which is the 125 dihydroxy vitamin D.、Uh -huh. That's the active form of vitamin D, which is also under the control of parathyroid hormone and as well as phosphorus. It changes more frequently. It has a shorter half life, so it's less helpful clinically, even if it's the active form of vitamin D.、Uh -huh. Because it's so variable and affected by many other things. Exactly, and you know I think. The the numbers that you see when you're measuring it are much more variable、mm -hmm. because of those changes that can occur, and you know based on what's happening with your calcium or your phosphorus or what's happening with parathyroid hormone, which is what converts 25 to 125 and controls that enzyme, the one hydroxylase enzyme. So that's certainly important from that perspective, and as well. You know, then vitamin D is important、um, in its active form. The one twenty-five dihydroxy vitamin D is important because it stimulates gut absorption、mm -hmm. of calcium and phosphorus. It helps to promote mineralization of bone. And then I mentioned parathyroid hormone. This is regulated by calcium levels as well as vitamin D. And you know, this parathyroid hormone it promotes the breakdown of bone. 
to release calcium and release phosphorus because it's trying to promote maintenance of your calcium level. It also will work in the kidney to reabsorb calcium at the expense of phosphorus because its main goal there is also to maintain a normal blood level of calcium. Mm -hmm. And so that's really important as well. But if we go back to the vitamin D levels that we're measuring, you have the 25 hydroxy vitamin D that has a longer half-life on the order of a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. whereas the 125 level is on the order of hours. So that's important when we're considering which level to measure. Um, we also know a little bit more about 2425 vitamin D, which is a breakdown product of vitamin D. We're learning about this as well. We see this in cases where we have high calcium or high urinary rates of calcium excretion and kidney stones and things along those lines. So more to come on this in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but clinically speaking, 25 hydroxy vitamin D is the most important for testing purposes. Great, that's a good one for us to remember. We're worried often when we're talking about vitamin D and vitamin D deficiency about rickets, um, and this is caused by some defect in mineralization. So what does rickets look like clinically? Right. So, you know, rickets certainly, as I say often, is a clinical or radiographic diagnosis. This is one where your physical exam also often gives you the clues to make that kind of diagnosis. And mm -hmm. x-rays can help confirm it as well. And then you have biochemical evidence to support that diagnosis. But more commonly, in nutritional rickets, you have vitamin D deficiency, where you have low levels that lead to an increase in parathyroid hormone and alkaline phosphatase reflecting increases in bone turnover. Over time, you have that mobilization of calcium from the bone, and then you have a progressive decrease in phosphorus because there's urinary phosphate wasting as a result of those elevations in parathyroid hormone. So as a result of these low phosphorus levels, it actually prevents, um, you know, apoptosis of chondrocytes that are in your in the process of forming bone. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, there's this disorganized growth plate, and then you start to see some of the changes that you're seeing clinically. So at, at the, the at the growth plates, exactly. So um, reduced calcium intake also contributes to this, um, and these this interplay between inadequate calcium and inadequate vitamin D helps to contribute to the development of rickets in growing kids. But at the root of the problem, is lower phosphorus levels, mm -hmm. um, which kind of are common across different forms of rickets. Um, but really, you start to see rickets when, you know, at the growth plates when you, you know, have a failure of mineralization. But interestingly, some kids don't have symptoms. Mm. And it's over time, usually six months, 12 months, maybe even 18 months, you know, this is the common range where you're going to see nutritional rickets develop. You know, but certainly the clinical evidence can be very nonspecific and individualized, but you could have motor delays, you could have poor growth, but the skeletal features that we are aware of can include rib beating where you have the rachitic rosary. Mm -hmm. um, you can have widening of the wrists and the ankles, you know, or as kids start to, you know, get towards standing and then ambulating, you can see bowing of legs or knock knees. Mm -hmm. um, frontal bossing. Frontal bossing, exactly. Um, and again, if you're looking on x-ray, you might start to see those changes where you see fraying, cupping, and splaying of the, the edges of the bones. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, again, you're going to see softer bones, which reflects the osteomalacia that occurs in rickets as well. But obviously what differentiates rickets is that this can only occur in growing kids 
whereas osteomalacia can occur in, in younger kids as well as older kids and adults where your growth plates have fused. Okay. So that's the unique feature of rickets. But again, these biochemical tests where you have vitamin D, the 25-hydroxy vitamin D, PTH, ALKFOS, calcium, and phosphorus levels, which help support your case mm -hmm. for rickets or what form of rickets. Screening vitamin D deficiency is recommended for those who are at risk. So who would you include in this at-risk group? So I'm a big proponent of more targeted screening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think people disagree on what that means. And, but I'm not a proponent of more universal screening um, like, we, like we have with other tests at certain ages. Right. Um, but the higher risk group in my estimation um, would include those with malabsorptive conditions, things along the lines of inflammatory bowel disease, cystic fibrosis, mm -hmm. those who might be on high risk medications that can promote the breakdown of vitamin D. So this would include some of your older seizure medicines, mm -hmm. some of your antimicrobial medicines, things like rifampin, um, antiretrovirals also would be included in that group. Um, those that are prolonged exclusive breastfeeders, mm -hmm. um, certainly that's a high risk group. You know, and then some individuals that maybe have higher risk for bone fragility. So, you know, in my practice, you know, those kids that maybe have neuromuscular disorders, cerebral palsy, those mm -hmm. kids that are at greater risk for fracture, maybe getting more vitamin D in those kids could be enough to, you know, help promote calcium absorption and you know, at least provide a little bit more um, protection. protection against you know, bone fragility. I, I still suspect it's probably a modest effect, but mm -hmm. those are the kids that I'm more concerned about in clinical practice. Right. So it's good to know that you're not advocating for universal screening, but that we should be a little bit more thoughtful about who we include. Yeah, I think, and, and I think part of that is because the vitamin D levels themselves, the tests themselves, you know, they're not perfect and they vary a fair amount, but depending on which lab you might have had it measured at, or um, the, the type season. of lab test or the season, because mm -hmm. depending on where your practice is, there certainly can be latitude changes. And, you know, practicing in the Northeast, you know, certainly seeing labs in the summer versus seeing labs in the winter or spring can really have an effect on our interpretation of those vitamin D levels. So talking about that, so what is the best measure of vitamin D deficiency? So we, you talked about the 25 OH, the 125 um, which one do, should we be checking when we are screening, and should we routinely include other things like CalSFOS, ALKFOS, or PTH? So for those that you're really considering screening for vitamin D deficiency, you know, I typically order a 25-hydroxy-D. This is the storage form of vitamin D. It gives you the most information. I very rarely order a 25-dihydroxy-vitamin D level. I'm also checking a comprehensive metabolic panel, which will get a serum calcium level, mm -hmm. um, but also the alkaline phosphatase level. And then I also add on a phosphorus level. Those levels of phosphorus are not typically captured in basic metabolic or comprehensive metabolic panels. So it's an important level to check. Mm -hmm. um, and then in cases where I'm really concerned about their bone health, I will check parathyroid hormone levels. Um, and if elevated, this is helpful to suggest that this patient either needs more calcium or vitamin D if it's, you know, suggesting elevation that may include kind of a secondary hyperparathyroid picture. So now that we have our vitamin D level, what level should we consider deficient or insufficient um, and think about treating? Once again, it goes back to what was your original 
reason for screening someone for vitamin D deficiency. So, and it's one that there's certainly not a consensus on what the right level is. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it depends on the organizations. Most organizations would state that a level of less than 20 nanograms per ml represents deficiency. Okay. Okay. Typically, levels below 12 nanograms per ml are associated with an increased incidence of rickets. Mm -hmm. But if your level is above 20, it's likely enough to prevent rickets in most cases. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics and the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academies of Science, note that sufficiency is above 20 nanograms per ml. Okay, the Endocrine Society and the American Society of Bone and Mineral Research state that levels between 20 and 30 represent insufficiency, and sufficiency is really above 30 nanograms per ml. Um, But it really, this disagreement or discrepancy depends on different interpretations of similar data. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of this data, you know, looks at functional outcomes data, um, such as effects of low vitamin D on PTH or parathyroid hormone and the population in question. So, you know, my personal view is that somewhere in between. So for the general population, a level of above 20 nanograms per ml is likely fine to prevent rickets and likely fine for most individuals. For those higher risk groups, um, there may be some benefit perhaps on increasing calcium absorption to have that level above 30 nanograms per ml. But for most individuals, I think a level above 20 is probably fine. Mm -hmm. But there certainly is a gray area between 20 and 30. That is, you know, depends on who you ask. Yeah. And maybe some of those high-risk patients that would be following the endocrine society guidelines would be seeing an endocrinologist like you anyway to tease out whether or not they need to be in that 20 to 30 or 30 plus range. That's exactly right. For those who we do want to treat their vitamin D deficiency, should we be giving them vitamin D daily or weekly? And how long do we replete their vitamin D before we switch over to a maintenance regimen or try to get them off of the supplement? Typically, I will treat for at least six weeks, but more commonly up to about 12 weeks okay. on a treatment dose. And part of that stems from what's the half-life of 25-hydroxidase, it's two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. So if I'm treating someone for 12 weeks, I really have reached a steady state and you know that treatment dose should be sufficient to help you know, target a level where I want it to, to go, typically above 30 nanograms per ml for someone that's on treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I will continue that for a few months and then kind of see what, whether I've met my goal or not. Once, it depends on whether I've met my, you know, how much higher the level is, has gotten. Right. So if the level is 32 nanograms per ml, after treating for a few months, I might just keep that child on treatment doses for a little bit longer. Okay. Because if I lower the level, then I'm probably going to be sub-therapeutic, sub-therapeutic all of a sudden. Um, but if I reached a level in the 50s or 60s, then I might mm-hmm. really go back down towards closer to a maintenance dose. Or for some kids, maybe a level that's a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's the child that needs... You know, if if the age group is 600 to 1,000, maybe that child does need closer to 1,000 or a little bit higher than that. Right. And I think that dose is safe even for the long term. Great. So about a minimum of six weeks, probably more likely 12 weeks in actual practice, and then see where you're at after that. Yeah, I think that's that's reasonable for, for clinical practice. But one exception would be for your kids with rickets where they are at higher risk for nutritional changes you know, I'll give them 2,000 units a day, but also make sure I, I add calcium okay. for those kids. So you mentioned 
calcium, do we need to supplement that for all kids with vitamin D deficiency or just those who are in that, like you've mentioned, um, kind of higher risk uh, concern for rickets levels? Right. So I think the, I, I always kind of take a dietary history in cases like this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one common misconception is that if your calcium level in your blood is normal, that your dietary intake of calcium is also normal, which is something to stay away from. Mm-hmm. Um, so in someone with inadequate calcium intake, your body's trying to protect or maintain a serum calcium level that's normal. And it does that through the different mechanisms of parathyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. So the kids that truly need calcium are those with severe deficiency, especially those with rickets, you know, most commonly in single digits for 25-hydroxy vitamin D. But, you know, again, most commonly a good dietary history will, will tell you who needs calcium. So we've been talking a lot about vitamin D deficiency, but can there be such a thing as too much vitamin D? And why would that happen? Is it from, I'm assuming, us over-supplementing them? So I, I think it's actually less commonly coming from us. Okay. I think usually when we're seeing... That's always good to hear. <laughs> ...complications of too much vitamin D, it's often from formulation errors, mm-hmm. misunderstanding of how to administer vitamin D, right. or rarely reading on the internet, mm-hmm. where you know different formulations of more is better which obviously with a fat-soluble vitamin like vitamin D, you can give too much. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be cautious with vitamin D supplements because they're not regulated as supplements. Right. And that presents a problem. But of course, since it's a fat-soluble vitamin, if it's administered incorrectly, you could certainly give too much vitamin D. And I think those are the vast majority of cases. And if we look over the last you know, 10 or 15 years, there have been more reported cases mm-hmm. of elevated vitamin D levels. If your level's above 150, you're more likely to see vitamin D intoxication and changes with hypercalcemia and hypercalciuria. But thankfully, you know, we don't see this too often. And you mentioned that a lot of times it's a formulation issue. So we should always be mindful in primary care, especially because we're giving vitamin D prescriptions to a lot of newborns that they're clear whether they're giving the drops versus the solution that's um, 400 IUs per one ml versus one drop. That's exactly right. And I think that's where most of the concerns lie between that or if there's a concentrated form of vitamin D that, that families have obtained. That's where you can also give too much. Right. So we've talked about a lot of different things within vitamin D, and I know this is one of your favorite topics. So give us your kind of top three teaching pearls that you would give um, physicians. And I know you teach all the fellows and residents at CHOP. So what are the top three take-home points from vitamin D? So I think the top three points would include only screen the high-risk populations. Okay. I would say that rickets is most commonly seen when your vitamin D level is less than 12. And it really depends on the interplay between calcium and vitamin D. And remember that this is one of those areas where you're, it's a clinical diagnosis. Right. It can be supported or also confirmed by x-ray, and the biochemical data really help to determine which form of rickets you're dealing with. Right. Whether Most commonly, it's nutritional rickets, but also you could sometimes see some of the genetic forms of rickets, like hypophosphatemic rickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my last pro would be that for treatment, really consider the age and size of the child. It's a fat-soluble vitamin. You can give too much. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it's also, and it's also obviously important to review formulation with families to ensure that they are not making a mistake with what we're prescribing. I think the thing that I learned too that I'll add in there is that the calcium level, the serum calcium level may not reflect the dietary deficiency because of the role that PTH plays. So just to not let that fool us. That's exactly right. So thanks so much for all that you do for our uh, bone health at CHOP. Um, tell us about where we can find CHOP Endocrine and reach you if we needed help. Um, if you have an endocrine question, you can reach us through one 800 try um, We also have an individual line, 215-590-4949, which are directly to our department. And we have within the CHOP community, we have a bone health consult service that handles inpatient matters if you have very high risk kids. Mm -hmm. And alternatively, we have a multidisciplinary bone health clinic that involves a physician, a physical therapist, and a dietitian, um, where we, we take different approaches to kind of optimize bone health in at-risk children. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.